Among the many ministries we try to accomplish here in response to God's grace, none of them may be so time-honored as our meal ministry. Every month, uh, we on the staff get a report from the meal ministry that tells us the numbers of families that have received meals and the numbers of meals that have been prepared, which is helpful to know administratively. We're also quite aware that behind every one of those numbers is a person or a family for whom that meal is a unique blessing. You imagine a chicken casserole sitting in the middle of a dining room table, steam piping up from it every time someone spoons out that creamy food. The table is encircled with family and friends who are grieving. Their loss is profound. But the food at the center is a reminder that they are not alone in their loss. It sustains their bodies for the hard soul work of grief. Or if you can imagine a giant Caesar salad on the countertop and every so often a parent or a grandparent or a cousin will walk by and take some of it out with a large fork on their way to the next task. And there are lots of tasks because in the background you hear the cries of a newborn infant. And as she nurses at her mother's breast, her new mother and all who pass through those doors are nourished and know themselves loved, and celebrated. Before the baby ever enters the doors of this sanctuary, the church has shown that love through a salad bowl. Or imagine the homemade macaroni and cheese, not the kind you get in the box, but the homemade macaroni and cheese that sits on a a plate next to a man who's recovering from surgery. He was told he shouldn't eat anything heavy, and so the person who made it went light on the cheese and used skim milk, but it's still delicious. And each time he takes a bite, he remembers all the prayers that have been and are being said for him. The food itself is a prayer. And he eats it reverently. A woman in the church I served in Alabama many, many years ago was the unofficial head of the food ministry. She basically was the meal ministry in that church. She would walk into the home of whomever it was that she was taking her signature casserole to. And when he or she said, thank you, she always said the same thing, which she said to me, Uh, quite a few times as well. She always said the same thing. Honey, in Alabama, we show love through food. So, you are well loved. I think she's right. But it's not just an Alabama thing. 
or a southern thing or an American thing. The world over, the world over, we show our love, our hospitality, our compassion through food. It's no surprise that the civil rights movement in this country focused so much on restaurants and lunch counters where African Americans were not welcomed at the time. We show who we welcome and we show who we reject by whether or not we will eat with them. It's a sacred act. You remember the old movie that reflected that reality so well? It came out in 1967. It was about a daughter who brings her black fiancé home, played by Sidney Poitier, home to meet her family. It was aptly titled, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Herod has a dinner party. Just prior to our reading today, King Herod Antipas has a dinner party. The food and the wine are plentiful, the dancing is enjoyable, and Herod the king is so taken with one of the young dancers that he promises her whatever she wants. She happens to be the daughter of Herod's mistress, Herodias, who is his brother Philip's wife. John the Baptist had told the king, you remember John the Baptist, he had told the king to his face that his affair with Herodias was wrong. Now Herodias' daughter dances before the king, and Herod is so pleased with her dancing that he swears that oath to give her whatever she wants. So she goes and whispers to her mother, What do we want? And her mother says, we want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. At Herod's dinner party on the whim of a beautiful woman, Herod has John beheaded. And in a cruel and gruesome show, presents it to the young woman. It's a disgusting display of power and misguided passion. And then Herod turns his attention to Jesus, wonders aloud to his servants if Jesus might not be John the Baptist returned from the dead. Chilling. This is the event that happens right before our text. So when the text says, after hearing this, that is what Jesus has heard. After hearing this, he withdraws and seeks out a deserted place. It's a combination then, no doubt, of fear and great grief that sends Jesus to this deserted place. Matthew focuses so much on Jesus so exclusively on Jesus that it's not until later in the text we even realize the disciples are also with him. 
Matthew says he goes alone. He's isolated. He's floating along the shoreline, looking for a place to be alone, a deserted place. Grief needs those deserted places. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work called A Grief Observed, which he wrote in the aftermath of the death of his wife, says, Grief feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. One senses this in Jesus as much as you can through Matthew's narration. One senses this in Jesus. The text is stark. When Jesus heard it, Matthew writes, he withdrew to a deserted place by himself. Is it too much to say that Jesus has been traumatized? And not only him, but his disciples, who are silent to the point of invisibility as they float along. And not only his disciples, but the crowd as well that walks along the shore, keeping track of Jesus' boat, wanting to be with him. Sometimes evil just does that to you, you know? You hear of this horrific, disgusting act, and for a moment you just cannot believe it is possible. How can one human being do that to another human being? Over a dance. Is there no depth to the depravity? No bottom that we can finally reach? That we visit upon each other? Sometimes we can become paralyzed by the heart. And it was not just anybody, it was his friend. His friend executed in this way. And now he has every right to be worried about himself and about his followers and about this crowd. Herod is a tyrant. And so Jesus looks and sees the crowd as he comes to the shore. He really sees them. And even in the midst of his own grief and fear, even in his own longing for the solitude of the deserted place, he has compassion for them. The Greek word, it's a familiar Greek word for compassion. It's, it says his stomach turned for them. He felt it in his gut. He goes to them. He heals them of their diseases. In some gospel accounts, he teaches them. He abides with them right there in the sad and fearful, deserted place. They experience his present presence in ways that bring life. But evening is coming. The hour is already late, and the disciples are getting nervous. They're concerned that this large crowd, 5,000 men plus the women and children, will not be able to eat. It will get too late. They should go into the villages and find something before it's too late. 
And that's when Jesus says those words, the key to this text. You do not need to send them away. You give them something to eat. Food is the way we show love. And the call of the disciples at this moment is to show love to this crowd on which Jesus has such compassion. To feed them out here in this deserted place. And when the disciples say they don't have enough to feed them, Jesus shows them that when they have him, they have more than enough. The words of the psalmist come to mind. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have everything I need. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me your rod and your staff that comfort me, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. And here they are, beside the still waters, lying in the green grass, being fed in the presence of Herod's threats and terror, fed until they are restored, fed until they are all satisfied and the baskets overflow. Food is how we show love. In that deserted place, love is abundant. It would be easy to get distracted by a story like this. And James Martin, in our book for the summer, talks about the many ways we do. We wonder, how could something like this really happen? We wonder whether or not maybe it happened in a different way, whether it was a simple case of people suddenly being inspired to share what they had. We find it easy to dismiss these miracle stories, especially in the Western church. Because we don't sit well with mystery. And this story has its fair share of that. But such questions ignore an important fact about this story. It's the only miracle story, the only miracle story, that is told in all four Gospels. Early in the church's common life, the story took central place. Jesus lifting his eyes to heaven, blessing and breaking the bread, giving them to the disciples who turn and give them to the people. We enact this story every time we break the bread at this table. We enact this story every time we bag green beans or potatoes for the Society of St. Andrew or put food in fuel bags that feed the food-insecure children in Williamson County for Grace Works, or drive a route for Meals on Wheels, or go to places like Washington, D.C. and Perryville, Arkansas to learn and to serve and to remember, or see someone with eyes of compassion and act on it. 
or when we take the casserole or the fried chicken into the home of a sad family or a celebrating family or a healing family. This is the church's story. And for two millennia, the church has responded to the grace shown here by feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting the sick and showing compassion. That's the mark of the church of Jesus Christ. Years ago, I got a call from someone. He had been in the hospital for a few days and had surgery and was now home recovering and the recovery was taking long, longer than he had hoped, and he fell into something that he described as a dark place. He was emerging from that dark place enough now to call me, to ask me for a name. Someone during that time had brought food to his home. One of those days, he said, when he was in the pit... And they had stayed with him and eaten with him. But in his clouded mind, he could not remember the name. So he described the person to me, and I couldn't help. I couldn't figure out who it was. I got into the directory and started flipping pages, trying to see. It was a mystery. He desperately wanted to send a proper thank you, he said, because the visit was a kindness when he really needed it. And the food and the company was welcome. We finally gave up on identifying the person, but, but truthfully, I, I know who it was. It was Christ in that home. As surely as he was on that seashore, in the green grass, breaking the bread. It's the church's story. It's the community's story. Christ shows compassion through his church. Herod is out there. He always is. And the crowds are out there too, starving in so many ways. And Jesus is here with us, always summoning us to compassion. You don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. And here we are, the church in 2018, so tempted to say, but all we have is this little bit. What good is this little bit in the face of all of that? What good can we really do? And every time we're tempted to say that, Christ once again breaks the bread, blesses it, and us. And we discover we have enough, more than enough. And our baskets, our cups overflow. May it be so for the sake of the church and for the sake of this world that God loves and for which Christ died. Amen.